Welcome to Founders of Nations, Conversations about Austria. Today I'll be interviewing Dr. Gunter Joseph Bischoff from the University of New Orleans, who is a historian who has done a lot of work with the Austria, and he is Austrian. I started the recording a little bit late, so I won't have a proper introduction in the recording. Here we go. Okay, so the, the difficulty with Austria is which Austria you're talking about. Today's Austria, as you probably know, was founded after World War I when the Habsburg monarchy broke apart, mm. you know, 1918-19. So in that sense, one of the founding fathers of today's Austria would be Karl Renner. You know, we can talk about Karl Renner, a socialist who happened to be the chancellor of the first republic after World War I. And then you might know Austria was taken over by the Germans in 1938, the Anschluss, mm. the annexation of Austria. Yes. And then uh, the powers decided to recreate Austria in the shape of the pre-war Austria in 1945. So then Renner came out of the woodwork and became the <laughs> chancellor of provisional government again. You know, when the Soviets set a provisional government up with Jan with Renner as chancellor. Okay. So he uh -huh. is twice founding father of, of Republic <laughs> in Austria. Mm. But you when you get to go further back, it gets more complicated. So yes. as I said, today's Austria comes out of uh, the Habsburg monarchy, right? Mm. Yes, sir. And uh, so then the question is, since when do we have a Habsburg monarchy in Austria? And that was in 1278 that Rudolf of Habsburg, the Habsburgs were a, a ducal family in what today is Switzerland, hmm. uh, sort of in the south uh, uh, western corner of the what was called at the time the Holy Roman Empire. Hmm. And uh, he was sort of elected uh, Holy Roman Emperor. And since the Habsburg lands, uh, meaning the Austrian lands had at that time no heir, he sort of moved to the Austrian lands. Now that leads us even further back. So this <laughs> Rudolf I would be a, a founder, right? Okay. Yes, and sir. then you talk about the, Hab uh, the, the, the Austrian lands, which is essentially what today is upper and lower Austria along the Danube. Okay, those lands were part of the Duchy of Bavaria within this larger complex of the Holy Roman Empire, you know, which goes back to Charles the Great, 800. Mm. So the Dukes of Bavaria, which covered a good part of the southern Holy Roman Empire, set a bunch of counts named the Babenbergs to govern what became known as the Austrian lands. It was first mentioned in a historical document in 996, the name Osterreichi. You know, the German name for Austria is Österreich. Yes, sir. I, sort I, of I... the realm in the east, right? Mm. So uh, this realm in the east, uh, what today is upper and lower Austria, was then governed by this uh, family of counts named the Babenbergs. B-A-B-E-N-B-E-R-G, the Counts of Babenberg. And sort of okay. they became solidly, you know, entrenched in these Austrian lands. Hmm. And uh, one Count Leopold probably would cons be considered a founding father too, you know, a very important Babenberg duke yeah. during the time of the Great Crusades. Okay. So, again, you have then... <laughs> What today is Austria, then you have Habsburg, Austria lasting for 600 years, mm -hmm. you know, from 1278 until 1918. And then you have the Babenbergs, you know, from 996 <laughs> until I think the last one dies about 1250. That's why the Austrian lands don't have an heir when Rudolf comes. I see. So then in terms of founding fathers, if you think about Habsburg emperors, I would think the most important one who could be called a founding father would be uh, Maximilian, Emperor Maximilian. Maximilian. So he ruled about 15, uh, 1480 to about 1518. And Maximilian, 
sort of would be considered a founding father because he largely expanded the Habsburg lands okay. through a politics of marrying. So he married a princess of Burgundy, which at the time was the richest part of Europe. Hmm. Burgundy sort of being northern France, reaching into what today is Belgium and the Netherlands. And uh, so that made him a much wealthier ruler. And then he married his children off to the prince and princess of Spain. So then the Habsburg reached out into Spain. And of course, this is the Spain of Isabel, uh, uh, you know, Isabella and Ferdinand yes, that sir. began conquering the new world. <laughs> so that's why one of Maximilian's sons, Charles V, who followed him mm. as emperor, was said to rule an empire in which the sun never set. Because due to another marriage, the Habsburgs now also gained the Hungarian crown and the Bohemian crown. So they sort of developed into what we consider East, East Central Europe today. Mm. And with these strategic marriages with, you know, the Spanish, now they also ruled the Spanish lands. Now, Charles, Charles V, would divide his lands with his brother Ferdinand, mm. who then became the Holy Roman Emperor to govern what today we would call the 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 you know Habsburg Empire, because the Spanish line then lasted until 1700, and then died out, and then Spain was taken over by the Bourbons, the sideline of the Bourbons of France. Yes. So, you know, in the war of the Spanish succession, that was fought out. Mm. And as you know, Spain then held on to its colonies in the New World until finally it lost Cuba in the war against America in 1898, mm. sort of as the last uh, colony in the New World. You know, so it's, it's a long and complicated history, and it sort of depends, mm. as I just told you, which Austria you're thinking about. I see to think of founding fathers, right? Mm. Uh, uh, an important Babenberg prince, Leopold, uh, Rudolf of Habsburg, and then Maximilian, the emperor that expanded the lands, you know, all the way down to until the Habsburg Empire, which then for a while was the Austrian Empire, and then it became the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1867. Mm. Uh, and eventually the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed in 1918, and out of it was a whole slew of nation, you know, that were born. Yes. Czechoslovakia yes, and Hungary and Yugoslavia. Romania, which had existed a bit longer, had uh, gotten a big part of the Habsburg monarchy, too. And not to forget Poland. Mm. You know, Poland was reestablished as a state after World War I, after it had been divided up yes. in the late 18th century and mm. gained a good portion of the Habsburg lands, what was called Galicia, today southern okay. Poland and part of Ukraine, you know, to make the story very complicated. <laughs> but just think about what we call the succession state of the Habsburg Empire, you know, how important those nations are to East Central European history. Yes, sir. So it depends which Austria you want to talk about, you know, <laughs> but you could also go back, I was thinking maybe do you ever hear of Utzi? Utzi, no, sir. Okay, Utzi was that man who was found in the ice. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Who had been killed like 6,000 years ago, you know, when he <laughs> went over a mountain pass from what today is Austria to what today is Italy. Mm. And he sort of, you know, when the glacier melted, was melting out of the ice, mm. and the German tourists found him. And he initially was brought to the University of Innsbruck to be preserved. Okay. But then they looked where was he found, and that was just a couple meters over towards the Italian border. Oh, no. <laughs> so Ötzi now has his own museum in Bozen, Bolzano in northern Italy. You know, wow. the province of the South Tyrol, which used to be part of Austria-Hungary, too. So Ötzi is a fascinating figure, you know, that sort of, shows a man that lived some 6,000 years ago, you know, mm. in the uh, uh, 
ending ice age. Uh, uh, and so, you know, he is a fascinating figure. So when I teach the history of Habsburg, Austria, mm. even though an American historian, I sometimes teach it. I usually start with Utzi. Okay. Okay. You know, so because this man, as I say, was crossing the mountains and was slain. We know today because a, an arrow was found in his back. Mm. And then he sort of sunk into ice and was preserved for all this time. Oh. So, you know, as my kids said when they saw him, it's a big beef jerky, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got his own museum, you know, and you can study that age in this museum and it's fascinating. So, so make sure you die in the ice. Is that what you're telling me? So you can get a museum later? Uh, yeah, so you get preserved. <laughs> <laughs> But as you know, the glaciers are melting again, like they well, did at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we'll have to go all the way to the North Pole, the South Pole, and die there. That that right. likely won't melt, hopefully. Right. So anyway, those are what I would, you know, thinking about your question, what I would consider founding figures. But I've never really could teach founding figures, you know, <laughs> like the American founding figures. Mm. So, Except maybe the generation after World War II that I studied very closely. You know, there is a generation of politicians that started what today's Austria, the Second Republic, is called mm. from 1945 to the present. Okay. Of which Renner, Karl Renner is one. Gotcha. All right. Do you want to talk about Karl Renner? Well, yeah, so that, that was going to be my question. If, you know, I... How long have you lived in the U.S. outside of Austria? Has it been a while or is it just recently? Yeah, I've lived. Uh, uh, so I came to the U.S. first as a foreign exchange student and spent a year as an AFS student in California in the East Bay area, close to Berkeley. Gotcha. Uh, that was 72, 73. And then I studied English and history in Innsbruck. And then given that the University of New Orleans has a close relationship with the University of Innsbruck, I came to study at the University of New Orleans for a master's degree. Nice. That was 1979-80. And then mm -hmm. after that, my professors encouraged me to apply to American graduate programs. So I got into Harvard and then in 1982, uh, since 1982, I live in the United States. You know, I got into mm -hmm. Harvard and studied there for seven years and since nice. 1989, I teach at the University of New Orleans. So I've lived in the States for a long time, but I go back regularly uh -huh. since I usually do my research in U.S.-Austrian relations. Okay, nice. Very nice. So I've, I've, I've been near you a few times. I've been to New Orleans many times, so I just didn't know you were there. I bet if you're in Pensacola, yeah. Yeah, it'd be nice <laughs> to speak in person in a good bar. Which yes, is sir. <laughs> So, so you said you you go out, you go back pretty often to Austria. Do you have Regularly, a lot of family I mean, there. I was I was a, a guest professor at the University of Innsbruck this spring semester. Oh, nice. So I was okay. there in quarantine, you know, from March until <laughs> May. <laughs> wow. Okay. So. So yeah, I, I I go back regularly to conferences to do research. Uh, uh -huh. You know, I've had multiple guest professorships, so that's how I stay in touch. I still have family there, so. Great. Nice. That's why I want to go back regularly. Yeah. Okay. So then, then my se my second kind of type of question on that same question of the the founders, is, you know, if you were to talk to um, to talk to just regular Austrian people, I, I mean, I found that most countries their their normal citizens don't have a strong historical background. They just kind of know this person was here and that person was there and they don't really know what they did. They just know the names. So yeah, you say I, that think, I think that would be true for regular Austrians too. If, if I think about some of my siblings, you know, <laughs> most of which didn't have higher education, hmm. they wouldn't know these figures, which I just told you about, you know, Leopold and Maximilian. They would have heard of Utzi and found him fascinating. <laughs> and they probably, because, you know, it's, still on television fairly often you know how austria was created out of world war one mm. they would have probably heard of renda you know gotcha okay but uh, uh uh none of the other the old historical figures uh -huh. yeah, so that's my so then maybe for a normal austrian the closest thing they would think of to a founder would probably be renner because he's more common in the well yeah, he's more recent he's more recent 
Hmm. Now, you know, I studied in Innsbruck and lived in the Tyrol off and on for quite uh, a bit of time because the University of New Orleans has still a summer school there and often taught in the summer school there. So hmm. I would say people in the Tyrol, at least the educated people, would know of Maximilian. You know, we gotcha. just had in uh, uh, 2018, 500 years of Maximilian, you know, 500 years ago he died. So there was a lot of exhibits oh, okay. in Innsbruck, in Vienna about Maximilian. You know, I mean, he was definitely a founding figure. Mm-hmm. If gotcha. you think of the Habsburg Empire and its unusual size, you know, I mean, in the in the 16th century, the Spanish Habsburg Empire was the largest empire in the world, hmm. you know, covering Spain as a European base. And of course, they also had a colony in the Philippines and hmm. a good part of Central and Latin America reaching up to your part of the world, you know, to Florida <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and to California and Arizona and New Mexico, you know. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay, so so, so probably I think Maximilian would be a figure that, so because you know he had his court in Innsbruck, mm, so okay. he lived a good part of his time in Innsbruck and had his family there, his wife that is, you know, mm. the kids soon would move on to Spain, so people in Innsbruck, uh, you know, in the Tyrol, educated people would know about Maximilian. And might think about him as a founding figure <coughs> if they would be familiar with that concept. You know, that's sort of uh-huh. sort of the question. You know, founders of states, say Simon Bolivar, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Venezuela and Colombia and those Latin American nations breaking free of uh, <laughs> uh, the Spanish Empire around 1800, right? The, yes, sir. Napoleonic period. I mean, those would be classical founding figures, right? Mm. Yes, sir. Or in Albania. Uh, did you do Albania? I did, yes, sir. I did Skanderberg. Yeah, Skanderberg. Yeah, he would be a <laughs> classical founder, you know, and he's uh-huh. gotten attention as a founder. Mm. And maybe in Yugoslavia, it'd be Tito. Tito. Yes, I've heard of you him. You know, Marshal Tito, the, the, the guy who ruled Yugoslavia for 30 years after World War II. So, but in Austria, you know, the history is too <laughs> long and too diverse to think oh. of a classical founding figure. Mm. That's why I sort of laid out the Babenberg period, right, until 1250 from roughly 1000. Mm-hmm. Then the Habsburg period, 1278, mm. through variations all the way to 1918. Mm. And of course, one of the high pound points of the Habsburg period when the empire really expanded under Emperor Maximilian. Gotcha. Maximilian is a fascinating figure because he's also called the last knight. Ah, okay. He he still would be involved in jousting matches. Ah. And would be, uh, Ah. you know, a good writer and uh, sort of jousting with people in the main city square of Innsbruck. Uh, So, you know, that sort of makes him a last figure. He's sort of a medieval (laughs) figure, but sort of his expansionist policies reach into the early modern period. Gotcha. That makes sense. And, you know, he had court historians who sort of created, you know, mythical genealogies for him, you know, that would go back to Roman emperors and so forth. Oh, yeah. Uh So, so if you, you know, when I take my Habsburg students in the summer school in Innsbruck to the tomb of Maximilian, there's a you probably can watch that, uh, look that up on Google, a wonderful tomb where he is portrayed, you know, as a, as a riding figure. And then he is surrounded by all these figures, you know, uh, his children and uh, his forebears, you know, like Rudolf the first, some Babenbergs and even mythical figures like King Arthur, you know, uh, he counted as one of the <laughs> forebears. Yeah. So, so okay. there you sort of see he had a whole, a whole court of historians that sort of created mm. this mythology around him. So in that sense, he is a well-known figure too. Gotcha. Oh, he, he had a very good, uh, very good historian for himself. Yeah, no, he, he sort <laughs> of created a lasting image for himself. Mm, okay. Yes. All right. Good. Okay. So then, 
Uh, maybe another question, and and this may not help at all. This may just be the same answer again. That there's that there's no such thing. But do you think any of those founders really affect the way the culture is now more than the others? Not necessarily the politics, but the way Austrians are, their uh-huh. their thoughts about things. Do you think any of these, the way they did things, really affected that, or probably not really? Well, that's a complicated question in the sense they surely did but sort of what defines an austrian today you know uh, <laughs> see i am from western austria mm. so my identity would be very different from a person growing up in vienna mm. you know okay. vienna yep. having been the capital of the empire many peoples from the empire came to vienna since it was the capital and there mm. was careers to be made there Mm-hmm. And so, you know, young Karl Renner, he grew up in Moravia and what today is the Czech Republic and then came to Vienna and made his career there. And many of Austria's founding figures sort of are that way. Okay. You know, uh-huh. Bruno Kreisky was the most important chancellor of the Second Republic. His family was a family of industrialists from Moravia, you know, just across mm-hmm. the border in what today is the Czech, the Czech Republic. You know, Moravia and Bohemia being the old historical names for what today is the Czech Republic. Okay, gotcha. So, uh, you know, uh, that means people from Bohemia, from Moravia, from Hungary came to Vienna to make careers. Of course, also the nobility, Mm. you know, might be having a castle in Prague and a castle in Budapest, but often they would have a a castle or a big townhouse in Vienna, mm-hmm. because if they had political ambitions, you know, they wanted to be close to the court in Vienna and get jobs, you know, of generals, diplomats, prime ministers, you name it. Mm-hmm. So that, of course, also applies to many people who just came to Vienna because jobs were there and, you know, opportunities were there. So, for example, in the late 19th century, Many Jewish people from Galicia came to Vienna. They also came to New York, to places like that, to the United States, but they also came to Vienna. And that, of course, then produced the anti-Semitism that led to Hitler, you know, Mm. and to worse things, the Holocaust. Yes. So uh, Vienna, you could say, like New York, was a real melting pot of peoples. And that sort of, you know, created, I would say, the Austrian character the way it is. Okay. And think about, you know, a good way to think about culture always is food. Yes. So classical Austrian dishes, what I would consider classical Austrian dishes I grew up with, are often dishes that might have come from Bohemia, Mm. like a, a pork roast, or from Hungary, like a goulash, you know. Uh Hungarian goulash, you know. uh, Yes. (laughs) So, you know, in that sense, Vienna became a real melting pot. And of course, Vienna is also known for its high culture because, Mm -hmm. you know, the court drew the top musicians like Mozart to Vienna, where they then composed for the emperor, you know. Mm -hmm. And it drew artists particularly... Yeah, you might have heard of Fern de Siecle Vienna, the end of the 19th, early 20th century, where we say modernism was born in Vienna. It was such a cultural hothouse mm. of writers and musicians and, you know, theater people and architects and uh, artists, uh, painters, you know, Klimt and Schiele, for example. So it was a real cultural hothouse mm-hmm. and a sort of that bred Viennese high culture, the way we understand it, the way the world understands it. Yes, and sir. again, there the Jewish influence was very important and big. You know, many of the artists were Jewish and the patrons were Jewish. Mm. But of course, these were the Jews that then were expelled from Austria in 1938 <laughs> when Hitler came. Mm-hmm. So now Austria is much more a homogeneous German ethnic country than it used to be. I Even see. though now new immigrants, you know, come into Austria, yes. including Muslims from the Near East or from the Balkans mm-hmm. that have created the recent, you know, uh, uh, 
terrorist attack in Vienna a couple of weeks ago, if you might remember. Mm. So, uh, you know, speaking of Austrian identity and what is Austrian, <laughs> it's a complex kind of thing. You know, there is the mm. Austrians, which I would say are largely, when the world thinks about them, the Viennese, because of the importance of Vienna as a cultural site mm -hmm. and okay. a multi-ethnic city mm. in Europe. And then yes. there is the many other Austrians who live like in Western Austria, like myself or in the Tyrol. Mm -hmm. And they have sort of strong identities that are related to their, the mountainous uh, uh, landscape, you know, mountains, hiking, skiing, that sort of thing. That's very prominent in, <laughs> yes, in Western that's what Austria. I know about, yeah. sort of if, you, if you think of them as tough mountain men, you know. <laughs> vis-a-vis -vis the soft Viennese, you know, urban types. <laughs> you know, rural Austria versus urban Austria. So in the First mm -hmm. Republic, you know, when Renner's Austria 1918 began, that was sort of the big political clash because mm. urban Vienna was red, meaning it was socialist, governed by the socialists. And much of rural Austria was what we today call black, you know, governed by the Christian Socials, a Catholic conservative party. Gotcha. And that political divide is still there, but it also defines identity. So I would find it sort of hard to associate Austrian identity with any of these founding figures that I've just mentioned. Yeah, I see. I mean, of, of Leopold, they say he went, I think, on the Third Crusade. And before uh, a, a, a fortified city in what today is Lebanon. He was wounded and he had a white tunica on and then a, a belt. And uh, so, you know, his tunica was white. No, it was bloody because mm -hmm. he was wounded. The belt, when he took it off, was white. Mm -hmm. and the pants were bloody too. And that's where the Austrian flag, red, white, red, comes from, supposedly. <laughs> So, you know, that's sort of a cultural item related to one figure. Yes. Uh -huh. You gotcha. see? <laughs> that makes sense. So, so you know, uh, I mean, I'm thinking about Austrian identity today more than about traditional Austrian identity, which is mm -hmm. harder to define. But again, you mm -hmm. know, in Vienna, those influences from all over the empire definitely would be important. Gotcha. to make Vienna what it is as a city. That makes sense. Yeah, so, you know, it, 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 even though America is much, much more of a melting pot today, uh, I think it, because it doesn't have quite as much history, there's, a, there's at least a little bit more of a uh, kind of identity of being an American in the U.S. But there are many people who have very different identities from that, but I would say the majority have yeah. this idea still but yeah I, I understand what you're saying about my wife has just read this book i haven't read it yet uh, it's downstairs uh i mean in there's many books in this room <laughs> uh it, it 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 sort of argues that america's seven you know regions that are almost mm. like nations you know the yes. northeast uh, is in and of itself <clears throat> and certainly the south is where i live you know mm -hmm. so i would definitely think the south have has a its own identity, you know, which is related <laughs> to, the, to the lost cause of the Civil War. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. uh, uh, and of course, racial relations with the former slaves, you know, with the black population. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you think about the United States being a vast land and, you know, really, really having, you know, various regional identities like the West and the Pacific West and the mountainous, you know, uh, West and the Midwest, uh, then you, I think, even small Austria, I would point out, has individual kind of regional identities like that, mm -hmm. which are often historically related, you know. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, yeah. Well, you know, like take take Salzburg, where Mozart grew up. Salzburg was ruled by an archbishop, and only in 1806 became part of the Habsburg Empire. Okay. And Salzburg today, of course, is the central part in the central part of Austria mm. as a very distinct identity, which is sort of related to this long period of archbishops ruling it. 
mm-hmm. you know, very Catholic, very conservative in, in that sense. And of course, the Archbishop was also a patron of the arts and supported the Mozart family, you know, Mozart's father and so forth. Mm. But, you know, we think of it as Austrian today, but it wasn't always Austrian. It was an entity mm-hmm. in and of itself with its own identity and history. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, I told you I work on Austrian-American relations and Austrian immigrants to the U.S. The first coherent group of immigrants to the United States came from Salzburg, and they're called the Salzburgers. Okay. The Archbishop of Salzburg kicked out the Protestants that still lived in his lands. Mm-hmm trying to re-Catholicize the lands. And this was relatively late in the 1730s. So it wasn't even during the Counter-Reformation. And uh, most of them went to Prussia, you know, what today is Germany. Mm -hmm. But a group of about 40 came to Ebenezer, Georgia, the sort of the the area of uh, Savannah. Uh And formed a community there. The so-called Salzburgers. So uh-huh. I call them the first Austrian immigrant group, but technically you could say, well, when they came, they weren't part of Austria. <laughs> I only do that because they're part of Austria today. You see, that's how complicated it is. Oh, oh, yeah, I see. <laughs> Even relating here to the United States, you know. Mm. Yeah, I see. Okay. All right. Well, so then I, I would say maybe your favorite is who we can focus on a little more do you have a favorite out of those options because you're austrian and i'm that's what i'm asking austrians is who their favorite is my favorite probably would be maximilian maximilian okay yeah we can focus on him because he is such a you know fascinating figure and sort of the creator of an empire Mm. yes but son never said (laughs) yeah the i i know you know when i was in school basically the only thing I knew about the Austrian Empire <clears throat> was that uh, was the Habsburgs and marrying, 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 marrying. Right, right. That's exactly what he became known for. You know, I mean, he had a famous <laughs> saying: "Ali Geran Pilla tu Felix Austria Nube," which means others may continually be engaged in warfare, but you, happy house of Austria, you marry. <laughs> and through these strategic marriages, you know, he tied the Spanish lands to Habsburg mm. and he tied the Bohemian, you know, what today is the Czech Republic and Hungarian lands to Habsburg. Mm. But then of course the empire really was sort of getting too big. That's why the two brothers, you know, uh, sons of Maximilian Ferdinand and Charles mm-hmm. or really grandsons they were divided up the empire eventually into an Austrian line and into a Spanish line. Ah, And as I say, the Spanish line died out in 1700. Uh And the Austrian line lasted until 1918. And Mm. believe it or not, there is still Habsburgs alive today, (laughs) which like to claim the crown, you know, of Austria-Hungary. You know, the, the, the son of the last emperor, the last emperor was Charles, Karl. He died in 1920, but his son, uh, uh, his son was called, let me see, uh, Otto, Otto of Austria. He only died a few years ago, you know, so, and he's got a bunch of children (laughs) that are alive, so there is still Habsburgs around. And Otto, (laughs) of course, was trying to claim the throne during World War II. Mm -hmm when he was in the United States and managed to get to Roosevelt in the White House, you know. Oh, wow. But that didn't happen because, you know, the peoples of the Czech lands and Hungary didn't want to have a Habsburg back. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, the family has a very strong sense that they represent Austria. Mm, yes. So so do you think, uh, this is actually what I've heard from uh, from a few people, is the to just say the Habsburgs and to do the episode on the Habsburgs in general. So would, would you say Maximilian is an even better focus or what do you think? 
Uh, that's that's a good point. I mean, the Habsburg family sort of made Austria what it is today, you know, because if you visit Vienna, it's full of their palaces, and that's what tourists want to see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in that sense, it's it's fair, but there is so many, you know, from Rudolf the First, twelve seventy eight to Charles Karl, you know, uh, who died in nineteen twenty. That's that's a, a long line of Habsburgs. Yes. So yes. I would say you pick out important ones. And I would say the important ones are Maximilian and maybe Maria Theresa, who was the first female empress. You know, okay. Today, we always have to have a gender aspect in history. <laughs> so Maria Theresa governed from 1740 to 1780, 40 years. Mm. And she had 17 children, if you can oh. imagine. Yeah. Wow. And of which two became her successors, uh, Emperor Joseph and then Emperor Leopold. Mm. But for example, one daughter was married to the King of France uh, and, you know, she was beheaded in the French Revolution. Marie Antoinette, you might have heard of her. Yes, sir. So she married her children off all over Europe, you know. Mm. But she also kept the empire together, even though she was a woman. And uh, so she had very good administrators and... Mm. There was continuous wars against the Prussians who thought Austria was weak and mm -hmm. tried to take lands away. And you know what, what? I mean, what the Seven Years' War in Austria, she was involved in that, you know, from 1756 to 1763. Uh, I think here it was called the French and Indian War. You know, that's the war yes. that sort of then led to the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. So she managed to hang on to the Austrian lands, at least most of them, keep the empire together, even though she was a woman and many of the male kings at the time, therefore, wanted to take away pieces from her. Mm. But by and large, they didn't succeed. So I would say Maria Theresa is a crucial figure in the Habsburg okay. trajectory of power, too. But to, to my mind... I mean, next to the real founder, Rudolf, you know, who came to Austria from Switzerland and was the first Habsburg to be Holy Roman Emperor, mm. with many to follow, uh, Maximilian probably was the most important one because the way he expanded the empire through his marriage politics mm. and also the fact that he created, you know, court historians that sort of wrote up his history the way he wanted to be viewed by the post-war mm -hmm. the way he wanted his legacy to be shaped mm. yes so um usually so with maximilian do you are there you said there are some kind of fascinating or fantastic stories that he kind of had his historians make up are are there any that you think are particularly memorable that maybe austrian people maybe most people know when they think wow that's that's really amazing or you know that's really silly or you know they just think wow you know like george washington uh, and the cherry tree yeah well uh let me think uh i mean one fascinating story about him is you know when he died he died in the city of wills which is close to linz but then the way he was buried his heart was buried in uh church in Wiener Neustadt, but his tomb was in Innsbruck. So as I say, you know, the guy was buried all over the place, <laughs> sort of signifying, you know, that he was a restless soul who was constantly engaged in warfare to hold his empire together. He was always broke, mm, by the okay. way. So that last time when he traveled towards Vienna, you know, he spent most of his time in Innsbruck, but in Innsbruck, none of the merchants would lend him money anymore. <laughs> he was gotcha. so broke. So he went, uh, uh, you know, on a journey where he eventually he died. So he conducted his war by being financed by, you know, wealthy merchants from Augsburg, Germany, the, Vic the Fuckers and the Wilsers. Okay. And, uh, these are, if you will, the Fuckers were the first capitalists. Hmm. And the way it worked, so at the time, they had silver mines outside of Innsbruck in a small town named Schwatz. Uh -huh. And he would uh, sort of, for a loan from the Fuckers, allow him to mine those silver mines. 
Mm-hmm. And then the silver that was found was minted in a nearby town to Innsbruck called Hall, minted into Thaler. And Thaler sort of is a silver coin similar to silver dollars, you know, later on. Okay. Uh-huh. So he, he, in that sense, was a, a lousy emperor in terms of finances, but he managed, given the wealth of his country, to keep the empire together by conducting wars, you know, in Italy against the French because of the Burgundian lands, constantly engaged in warfare, and much of it funded by these wealthy German merchants, bankers. Gotcha. You know, okay. the, the Wilsers, for example, had mines in the New World, and San Luis Potosi, I think, is in Colombia, you know, so we think that actually the first Austrians to come to the New World, including maybe to the United States, were German miners, you know, that came with the Vilsas to, to mine in, in mm. Latin America in the, in the rich silver mines. There. See what happened? You could say under Maximilian's time, the Tyrol might be the wealthiest part of Europe. Okay. And of course, he had also... With his marriage to Mary of Burgundy, he had inherited the Burgundian lands. Mm. <coughs> and the, the traders, the merchants in Burgundy, in what today would be Belgian cities like Ghent and Bruges and Brussels, they conducted much of the trade with the New World, and eventually they would bring the silver back from the New World, mm-hmm. which again then made the lowlands, the Netherlands, and so forth, which were still part of Habsburg and then broke away, mm. the wealthiest part of the world. You know, they were sort of more related to the Spanish part of the Habsburgs. Gotcha. But all of this started under Maximilian. So think of the mm. Tyrol that Maximilian ruled as the most wealthy part of Europe at the time due, due to these Tyrolese silver mines, but then the focus shifted to the Atlantic world, to the new world with the wealth mm-hmm. that was produced in these Spanish Habsburg silver mines coming to Spain, to, mm. the, to the lowlands, Netherlands. And so, you know, the whole trade was re-traced re, uh, from Central Europe to Western Europe and the new world. But again, all of this happened in or after Maximilian's time due to these strategic marriages that we talked about. I see. I see. Okay. Very good. I mean, there is a cute story, if you want a story that they tell in the Tyrol. You know, he was an avid hunter. Uh So there is sort of a a hunting book that he put together, which is, you know, with many pictures Uh that historians study. And uh, he liked to to climb mountains. Mm. So he got lost in this uh, uh, big wall west of Innsbruck, big mountainous wall that he climbed up Uh and had to be rescued. And uh, he he apparently said when he was, you know, sort of stuck in this climb, I wish they would come finally and get me out of here. And Kemerton then became the name of a town at the bottom of this mountain <laughs> that still exists today. Kemerton, Wenstock Bloss Kemerton. So it's sort of a cute story, you know, that he was a, a daredevil, if you will, and he went climbing steep mountain walls by himself. And this mm. time he couldn't finish it. He needed to be helped. <laughs> so Kemerton, which part of that phrase was Kemerton? Was that the get me out of here? Right. If if only they would come. Okay. If only they would come. If Wenstock blows Kemerton, it's a dialect. If only if Wenstock Kemerton, you know, if only they would come. (laughs) I like it. Nice. All right. Good. Okay. So we better get on to the most, the next questions. We're getting ready to run out of time. Um, Yeah. I have, I have about an hour, you know. Yes, sir. Me too. (laughs) You saw my wife. She's already checking on me. The babies yeah. are back there. Okay. Uh, so uh, I think we talked about that pretty pretty well already. Um, so I think we can go on to the last question because you, uh, even though I didn't ask some of these questions, you've already answered them. 
So is there anything you'd like to, uh, to say to people who are learning about Austria that we haven't talked about, maybe something important to know or something to help them understand what Austrian life is like? Well, I mean, I would like to say that today's Austria, even though it was sort of started as German Austria, you know, reflects in many respects the old Habsburg Empire that, you know, these diverse people that say came to Vienna or Austria still live there. Mm. They've only sort of been absorbed into the German-speaking community. And, you know, uh, Austria now gets many immigrants, as I told you, from various parts of the world, particularly from the Balkans, from former Yugoslavia. Mm. So that's changing Austria again, you know, and while it used to be a Catholic, that's sort of important, a Catholic German-speaking country, it's mm. become much more multi-ethnic. And, you know, I think the Muslims are the quickest growing religion in Austria today. So we are facing the same sort of issues you know, that much of Western Europe faces. How do you mm. integrate such groups into yes. the natural unit, uh, you know, into the body politic? Mm. And, you know, creates creates a lot of tension because culturally, Austria always was Catholic. And, you know, that's where the Habsburgs also are important in uh, the early and later 16th century from the time of Maximilian onward. I mean, keep in mind, Luther hammered his 95 theses, starting the Lutheran religion, onto the core church in Wittenberg. It was still, Maximilian was still alive. Then, mm. of course, very quickly, Protestants came from Germany to Austria too. However, the Habsburgs became then the force in Europe that uh, really fostered the counter-reformation, meaning okay. the re-Catholicization mm -hmm. of the German lands that had become Lutheran. And of course, this then led to the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, mm. and eventually to the triumph of uh, uh, the Catholic religion in the Austrian lands, in the Habsburg mm. lands, in most of them, you know, even though, say, Hungary was largely Calvinist, but the Catholics were important too. Mm -hmm. And eventually in the 18th century, you know, before and at the time of Maria Theresa, it led to the Baroque culture of Austria. Mm, okay. The Baroque yeah. culture sort of is a good representation of Austrian identity. Okay. You know, it's very elaborate. If you know a Baroque church, for example, yeah, sir. with a lot of gold leaf, <laughs> with a lot of angels, putti, sort of, you know, very Baroque, as the word <laughs> says, right? Yes. And sort of that defines the Austrian character, too. This historian Friedrich here wrote a book about Austrian identity, and he sort of says it starts in the Baroque age. Mm. And, you know, the complexity of that architectural style, mm. representing the complexity of the Austrian character and its, you know, multi-ethnicity and so forth, very well, but also his sort of shininess and, you know, expressions and so forth. So I think hmm. Baroque is still an important part of the Austrian heritage in the sense that the many Baroque palaces and churches and libraries that were built in that era are still being kept uh, uh, alive, meaning restored and so forth, because hmm. I think they express the Austrian character well. And of course, many tourists, when they come to Vienna or to Eastern Austria, you know, these original Austrian lands that I talked about, yes, you know, going back to the Babenbergs, they usually visit these Baroque places, you know, mm -hmm. and they sort of marvel at how elaborate this architecture is. Yes, definitely. So I, I would say that that's, you know, the Catholic tradition in Austria is an important part. Okay. But, you know, today Austria is a land where most people say they are Catholic, but they no longer go to church. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, just so a cultural sense, identity. It is right. It, it, it's part of the Austrian identity, but it's no longer such an important part of the way of life. Mm -hmm. Say, you know, in the United States, many more people go to church. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, practice their religion 
that in Western Europe, Austria included. Gotcha. That makes sense. But, you know, the churches, of course, define the Austrian landscape because every village mm. has a nice big church, you know, at the center <laughs> of town. Yes. <laughs> All right. Good. Okay. And uh, is there... So one wonders what will become of that heritage, you know, because it's harder and harder for the Catholic Church to maintain these cultural treasures. Yeah, I cannot imagine how expensive that would be. Yeah. All right, good, good. Okay. Okay. So is there, um, you, you said you, you teach at the University of New Orleans, is that correct? Yeah. Okay, great, great. Uh, I guess we can give a plug to them. The University of New Orleans, very good place. Right, and I direct actually an Austrian center there. Ah, okay, nice. The University of New Orleans is one of four Austrian centers in North America. Okay. We know. have one at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis has one. Uh -huh. Berkeley has an Austrian center within its European studies program. And then uh, the University of Edmonton. I think Joe Patruch referred you to me, yes, right? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. uh, Joe Patruch used to be at, uh, I think, uh, the University of South Florida in Miami, and he's now the director of the Austrian Center in Edmonton, the only Canadian center. So, I mean, that's sort of significant, but ours goes back to this long relationship with the University of Innsbruck. Okay. Gotcha. And sort of, I was the first student from Innsbruck to come to New Orleans, and I got stuck there, if you will. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so you were, you, you were the founder. You were the first one. In a way, a co-founder, yeah. Yeah. Very nice. All right, great. Well, thank you for taking your time on a on well, work yeah, day to talk to me. If you have questions, you can always email me. Okay, definitely. Okay. So good luck. Send me uh, your thing when it's finished. I'm curious what you make of it. Okay, we'll do. Okay. Hopefully it won't be too bad. <laughs> right. Okay, good. Good talking to you. Right, Matt, you take care. Bye-bye. Have a good day. And you too. This interview has been a part of the Conversations series on the Founders of Nations podcast, a podcast where we seek to learn about the nations of the world by studying the lives of their founders. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, TikTok, wherever you like, or you can go to our website, www.langforlife.com slash founders. <laughs>